company. Now, I'm excited to continue the sermon series we started last week about look again because there is an opportunity for us to look again at the God that we've heard so much about. And sometimes when we've looked, we've seen through jaundiced eyes or we've had a different perspective. And I think there's an opportunity and there's a call in the spirit for the Lord to say, hey, I want you to come have a look again at who I am and what I'm doing. Today, I wanna look again at God's greatness. The simple truth is that what I see will, will profoundly affect what I do and what I say. Because if I see God accurately, I respond accurately. If I see with a jaundiced view, I don't respond accurately. And so uh, that's just the reality. So this series is inviting us to take another look. And one of the challenges of today's message is that oftentimes religion can co-opt a subject and, and squeeze it into a religious feeling thing when actually it's just a truth. And so sometimes... That can, that can drift us off. In, in Jesus' day, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had wrapped up their religious theology in such a convoluted mix that when he, truth himself, Jesus said, I am truth. When truth himself stood in front of them, they, they, they couldn't see him because they had this knot. So I'm, today I'm hoping to take a, a leaf blower to the mists of religion and just kind of blow it out and say, let's try and get some clarity on who God is. Because I wanna talk about God's greatness. And the problem with the, the theology, the, the subject of God's greatness is it's so wrapped up in theology. And I wanna just go, I like theology, I, I'm, I like it. I'm not anti-theology, I'm just going, can we just have a look again? And maybe we can see something that's not there. So we're gonna try and erase the clouds of religious thinking and to look with fresh eyes uh, to see all the beauty of our God. To rummage through the old stained glass portraits and the saints with painted halos on their heads and the sufferings of Jesus depicted by his emaciated body. And I wanna look past all of that and see the great king who's coming on the clouds, as the scripture says. I wanna listen beyond the years of tradition that have been added to the scriptural text and past the carefully crafted theological tenets that we must memorize in place of scripture and past the incense that's been poured out on tiny altars, past the teachings of the gnat strainers and the camel swallowers and I just wanna to get to a, a, a real and raw and honest place and have a look at God's greatness and see what it has to say to us. I think, um, let me, let me take you to a scripture that really is in, in um, 2 Kings 6. Uh, because I think it illustrates what we're trying to do and then I'm gonna get to a perspective. 2 Kings 6, uh, Elisha has been telling the king of Israel what the enemies are trying to do. And so the, the enemy would have a war council, they'd decide on a course of action, Elisha would get the word of knowledge, he'd call the king of Israel and say, listen, they're gonna come up this stream around that gully, they're gonna come up here, they're gonna attack at this time on that date. And the king of Israel was always ready for them. And so the, the enemy is frustrated and he goes, what is going on? And somebody says to him, listen, you, what you whisper in your bed, Elisha's telling the king of Israel. So he says, okay, let's go, let's go to the problem, let's go and capture that. So he sends his army to go and capture Elisha. That's where we pick up our story. When the servant of the man of God arose early and he went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, do not fear, 
for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That sounds like a very religious kind of thing. Don't worry, those who are for you. I'm going, look, all I can see is the ones who are against me. Can you help me? I need to see, Lord, because I can just see problem. I need, a, I need somebody to help me look beyond the problem. I, I need to see something else. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes so that he can see. What a great prayer. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When his eyes were opened, he saw horses and chariots of fire and angelic warriors all around them. Now, I think if he really did see, this is Haswell theory, I think he saw because on some of those people who had come to attack Elisha was some demonic presences and some, and I think when he saw, he saw not only the army that was against him, but he saw behind them chariots of fire and angelic warriors. And, and then he saw the demons sitting on these people looking back over their shoulders, petrified because they're about to get beaten up. I think if he really saw, he saw the whole picture. Now, oftentimes, when I don't see accurately, a poor response comes out of my mouth because I respond according to what I see. So do you. We, we say what we see and our actions and our obedience, you know, we, we do what we're seeing. And the answer, I think, is to ask the Lord, pray the same prayer, Lord, could you open my eyes? Because I can't see anything but problems. And when I cry, alas, it's simply because my eyes can see no eternal fire. Because if my eyes can see eternal fire, I don't shout alas. I go, oh my. Oh my, this is going to be fun. Oh, this is great. Matthew 5 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a gift that is. Imagine, that's why it's so important to have a pure heart. I'm beginning to pray, Lord, could you help me with my heart? Purify my heart, because I want to see God. I don't just want to see his army. I want to see him. I want to see what God is about, because this enemy in front of me who's shouting at me, I don't have, you're going out of focus, because I see the king of glory in all his glory, and he's risen, and he's coming towards me. See, that changed your whole life right there. Because if you looked and you saw the hills around you full of chariots and horses of fire and angelic warriors, don't you think some of your responses would be different? Being able to see with spiritual eyes, being able to see the kingdom, is what makes all the difference. And so today, I want to invite us to see again. And the subject we're going to look at is God's greatness. Just before we delve into God's greatness, I want to talk about this idea of proper sight because Jesus equated seeing with being born again. He said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom. There's something attached to us being born again, being welcomed into God's family, coming into the kingdom. He said, you, you cannot enter the kingdom unless you're born again. You won't even see the kingdom unless you're born again. So there's something about being born again that enables me to see something that's beyond what I can see with my natural eyes. There's this engagement with the kingdom. 
And, the, and so I want to just briefly just take a little pause and talk about something that will help you. Because sometimes when you're looking and you can't see what everybody else sees, you need somebody to point it out to you. Go, look, you see there? See where that tree goes down like that? Yeah, look there, right there in the grass. You see there's a little shape like that? And then you go, your eyes become acclimated to, oh, then you can see. So I just want to do that little pointing out for a moment because I think it's helpful for us because we're talking about taking another look. And I want to just reframe the way you look. I want you to look for kingdom rather than for some other things. See, Jesus arrived on the scene proclaiming a message of the kingdom. <laughs> he said, repent because my kingdom is here. That's a funny thing to say. You better change the way you view life. You better take a new brain because my kingdom is here. You have to change some stuff about the way you go about your life because the kingdom has come. Now, let's just go back in history. The kingdom of heaven existed before the earth existed. Earth is a creation of the kingdom of heaven. The king of heaven created everything that exists for the sake of his kingdom and for the extension of his kingdom. The earth was created to extend the kingdom of heaven. So Adam is born and the kingdom of heaven is in his heart, is in his life. He's under the rule and the dominion of God. Adam walked around on this planet. This is put into the DNA of humankind. We understand we were born to be part of a place, a kingdom that is supposed to be functioning on the earth. And when Adam sinned, he didn't just back away from the, from the, the kingdom of God. He was now subject to a new kingdom. The kingdom of the prince of darkness. Lying, cheating, thieving, selfishness. The nature of this kingdom. The kingdom that Adam had come out of was ruled by the king who we now know would leave heaven and all his glory to take on the human form, to suffer, to become obedient even to the death of the cross. The king that we know that rules this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, would pour out his life on our behalf, who would stoop down to wash the lowest feet. That king is the king of this kingdom. It is the nature of this kingdom, but the kingdom of selfishness is what Adam was now bound up in. Do you understand? A brand new kingdom. And so one of the things we, we, we have to is to orient our eyes is to stop looking through the lens of this kingdom and look for another kingdom. Jesus came preaching another kingdom, a country of his own jurisdiction. He did not come to start a religion. Jesus came to, to further his kingdom. See, sometimes we think Jesus came so we could be the biggest religion in the world. No, Jesus didn't. His plan wasn't to start a religion. His plan was to usher his kingdom into the earth. And if you read the end of the book, it says the kingdoms of this world, they have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. The whole extent of the scripture is that Jesus will reign. His rule will be extended. Isaiah 9, for unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And he shall reign on the throne of David forever. Do you understand? When the scripture talks about Jesus talking government, and typically what religion will do is, is we take a scripture like that and we, put, we make it a 
pretty Christmas card. I'm not anti, I'm just saying, if you read the scripture without religious view, you, you, you can't miss the government that God keeps speaking about. I'm gonna extend my rule. Am I preaching yet? Anyone? Religion is man's search for God. The kingdom is what man is searching for. Because in your DNA. And if you're not yet satisfied, even though you're a Christian, it's because you haven't yet found the kingdom. Because Jesus told two parables. He said, the kingdom is like this. It's like a pearl merchant who spent his whole life looking around at pearls. Then he found one that was worth all of them. And he sold everything else he had to buy that. The search has ended when you find the kingdom. It's like a man who's walking in a field that's for sale and he finds a treasure, hundreds of millions of dollars, and he goes, how much do you want for the field? $30,000, okay, sells everything to buy the field. You stop searching when you find the kingdom. We have to learn to see slightly differently. Um, Adam didn't lose a religion, he lost a relationship and a homeland. He lost his native country subjected to a new kingdom, which he hated. Jesus came to restore us back to what Adam lost, a relationship and a country of our own. But you can't live in the kingdom with a religious mindset. Let me see if I can. Pretty much every country in the world that I've gone to has their own laws, their own moral code, their own culture, code of ethics, their values, their customs, their legal systems, they have, this is normal to them, and they think it's wonderful. Pretty much every country I've been to, that's, there's a national pride in this is how we do what we do. And pretty much when you add the gospel to any national pride, there is a tendency in human nature to want to take the gospel and leave out those parts that dig into us as a, on a national level, and embrace the parts that we really like. So I've been in some countries where it is not frowned upon to lie to a visiting Westerner because you can get more money out of them if you lie. It's not considered evil, it's kind of a cost of doing business with Western Christians. Now, I find that objectionable, but it's not in some cultures because there's desperate poverty and do you understand that there is a cultural heritage when we add the gospel to it and we don't apply the whole gospel. We don't embrace the whole gospel. We embrace the parts of it that really fit with us. Then we have a gospel that's really not the gospel of the kingdom. Am I making sense? Jesus called this gospel the gospel of the kingdom. We don't really have the gospel of the kingdom, but we have a gospel that fits with us. I know some, some countries where the love of money is completely acceptable. It's not frowned on. And if you have to beat up a few people on the way to your success, that's cost of doing business. That's the way it is. It's not really bad, as long as you're successful in the end. Jesus didn't come to sanction a national gospel. Jesus came to extend his kingdom. So when we look through the lens of a national gospel, we don't see who he is. We don't see accurately. When you look through the lens of the king of the kingdom, 
you start to see accurately. And you start to respond to him. So I'm inviting you to look again with fresh eyes at the king of glory. Because what you see affects what you say and what you do. That's just simply a wise thing to want to look again to make sure that what I think I saw was actually what I saw. So what do you see when you look at God? And what do you know that's absolutely true? What do you know that's absolutely true? You can, you can grind my bones to make your bread, but I'm telling you to the core of my being, there's some things I know to be true about God no matter what the circumstances. No matter what happens, I know this to be who my God is. You can't take it away from me. Because I am persuaded there's neither heart nor depth, nor angel nor demon, nor the past or the present, or anything else in all of creation can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. To the bone. What do you know like that? Because when you get, in th- you get into the toughest of times, it's not the, 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 theolo- the theologies out there that are going to make a difference. It's what's in here that gets you through. I want to see fire when I look up. So let's look again at God's greatness. Let's come back to this. The, the reason I'm, I, did, I took a long time is because God's greatness is the one that religious pounds on, jumps on, and owns. Because religion wants to own the greatness of God, and there, there is this wealth, there's an absolute overwhelming treasure chest of Scripture all over that talks about how great God is. It's just, it's just an abundance of scriptures. As I started this, I have, I, started, I have five different ways of going about this. I had a whole bunch of scriptures going, no, I don't want to use that one. So this, I could have done this any different, five different ways, at least. And, and I realized that, that it's such a treasure chest. And the problem is that uh, people, theology wants to imply because it, it, it scours the greatness of God and wants to imply that God is unapproachable and relationship with him is unattainable. That he is so great. He's so sovereign. He's so holy. He's so awesome. He's so Im- unbelievably pure. And I'm so broken and messed up and struggling and failing that how can these two ever come together? This kind of theology drives a wedge between man and God. And it, is, it does exactly the opposite of what the gospel is intended to do because the gospel drives a wedge between the, the distance. The gospel says that God became man to destroy the gap between us. And so the danger of this kind of theology, when we talk about the greatness of God, it drives God to this beautiful, perfect being that's so far distant it's what, the, it's what the Greeks believed about God. They called God the logos, the, the word, the, the perfection of logic, the absolute everything that you needed, the, the, the most pure, the most wise, the most holy, the most awesome. But to their mind, this God was so distant because he was so different from us. And John writes, he, John picks us up and he says, in the beginning was the Logos. This God, this perfect being that you guys are talking about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and He was with God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Word became flesh, and He lived among us, and we have seen His glory. We've tasted and touched and known the Logos. And 
An encounter with God's greatness will leave us in awe and shaken up, but aligned with him. And here's the kicker. Most of the time, an encounter with God will leave me hungering for more. I just want to do it again, Lord. Can we just do that again? Awestruck, amazed, blown away. Can we? I want to go back there. Religion is going to put special sounding words that try and remove you from that moment and seek to retell it without the fire. So let's go. Psalm 62, David said, uh, one thing God has spoken, two things I've heard. It's the Hebrew way of saying that. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. There is greatness and power and awesome majesty and glory And there is incredible love. And these two are in balance. These two go together. You cannot separate the uh, attributes of God, his holiness, his glory, his separateness, his wisdom, his omnipotence. You cannot separate that from who he is. He is love. And so the problem with theology is that it will tend to exaggerate the greatness of God or not even exaggerate, try and keep up with the greatness of God, but fail to understand that God's greatness is used in line with his character, which is the God who delights to show loving kindness to his people. These two are in perfect balance. And that word which says all glory, and there are two things I've understood. God is amazing and awesome and glorious in power, and he's full of love. That word is chesed. We, we spoke about it last week, the loving kindness of God. I hope that today, for after this time, that you never, ever, ever hear a sermon again about God's greatness, and you don't expect it to be manifested in your life. Because God always uses that according to his love, according to what he works. This is his nature. This is who he is. So anytime there's a theology that talks about the greatness of God and puts him at a distance, I reject that theology. Because Jesus came to demonstrate that God is the God who loved the whole world and therefore sent his only begotten son. That should put it to rest. God is great. Psalm 145, great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. In the old ships, they used to have a weight, a rope, knots on it. One fathom, two fathom, three fathom, four. They're getting near to the shore, they say, how deep are we? And they throw it over, one, two, three, and the Bible says, no one can fathom God's greatness. 7,953,000,000. His greatness, no one can fathom. There is no mechanism of measurement that you can apply to the greatness of God to get your arms around it. People can't even describe it. David said, his greatness, no one can fathom. God's greatness is hailed by those who know him the best, the people who are in love with him, those devoted to him. They just talk about his greatness all the time. But it's also spoken about by people who resisted him, and then he sorted them out, and then they go, you know, you, you're great. Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm the, I'm the fattest cat in the whole world. God said, I'm tired of that. Come here. Seven years, he lived like an animal. Then he woke up, and he goes, no, 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 no. There's a God in heaven, and he's the great one. From kings and false prophets and enemies, everybody learns to acknowledge the greatness of God. And the Bible says the day is coming when every knee will bow and and every tongue that 
will confess. Everything that ever was created will bow the knee and say, you are the Lord, you are the master, you are in charge to the glory of God the Father. And sometimes God himself even speaks about it. Because this is who I am. He says, uh, by the way, Isaiah, who has measured the waters in the palm of his hand? Because he was forgetting how great God is. Because remember, remember when I weighed the mountains and the scales? Everest. Mm. A little bit more. It's about right. Job forgot this. He started getting a little bit, a little bit sassy with God. And God goes, um, Job, let's just talk about, remember, remember when uh, I set the foundations of the earth? You were there, right? When, when I did it. Oh, no, no you... Or when I told the, 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 the oceans how far they, when I set the continents in place, do you, do you remember how we did that, Job? No. I want to focus on a small sliver of this because uh, it, it, the scripture is so full of this. And I, I, I wanted to talk about what Paul said because you, you discover this in Paul's writing. Paul's had encountered God, obviously, and he'd, gone, he'd been taken to heaven. He was, he was really in the middle of things. And so what happens in Paul's writings is oftentimes he writes, he finishes a thought, or he, he just mentions God, and then he just goes off on this, what is called the doxologies. The, it, it's just a litany of praise. It's just a way to say, thank you. So you find this all over Paul's writings. He just, he's talking and then he just goes, this is who he is. So let me read you some of those just to give you a sense of what is actually true in this whole picture. 1 Timothy 1.17. Now, to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6 which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Galatians, to the Father, for whom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Romans. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Philippians. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You have this idea that people who've met God and have a great relationship with him just sporadically burst out in, oh, he's just awesome. Just king eternal, immortal, invisible, unbelievable, just great. And you know what? He's going to be praised forever and ever and ever. God's greatness no one can plumb. No one can fathom can't get to grips with any standard of measurement because no plan of his can be thwarted. No word of his can be made untrue. No portion of his nature can be changed. 
No enemy can stand against him. No wisdom can overcome him. No one was ever before him. Nothing was created without him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He has created all things. He sources all things. He sustains all things. Through him and to him and for him are all things created. And he is the head of his body for the sake of his people so that in everything he can have supremacy. Nothing and no one that ever existed even comes close to being able to resist him. Our God is in heaven, the scripture says, and he does whatever pleases him. This makes me want to fall down and worship because I'm so grateful that this glorious, irresistible God is that beautiful and true. He is good and holy and kind and upright untainted by temptation, unmoved by sin. Imagine if he was that awesome and was stingy or vindictive. If he, because no one can stand against him, if he was vindictive and had that power, we would be in deep trouble. But the point of talking about the greatness of his glory and the awesomeness of his power is rooted and settled and made secure in the perfection of who he is. That's why his love always and his power go together. That his power is always tempered by his nature. God is love. That glory is always expressed through his nature. And his nature is that of a father. His nature is that of a redeemer. His nature is that of a lover. Nature is that of a servant. Jesus said, take my yoke on you because I am humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus didn't change his nature when he came to earth. He came to earth to exactly exemplify his nature. He wasn't faking it when he was serving. He is willing to serve. It's the nature of his kingdom. That's why when I'm unwilling to serve, it means I don't see his kingdom yet. Because if you can see it in the kingdom, you see the king of glory serving humanity. It makes you want to do the same. People unwilling to serve other people have never seen the fire of the king of glory serving other people. They've never really seen the cross where the king of glory came to serve mankind by giving up his life. His greatness accomplishes the desires of his love. One thing I've heard, two things you've spoken, God, you're powerful, God, you're loving. In, in Matthew 8 and Mark 1 and Luke 5, there's this great story about a guy who's got leprosy and he comes to Jesus. And he says, Lord, if you were willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus is moved. The Bible says he's, he's the one version says he's indignant. The other version, most of them say he's moved internally by deep compassion. And, but, but whatever, that moment impacts Jesus because here's a man, he comes and falls at Jesus' feet and says, basically in effect, he goes, I know who you are. I know that you have the power to do this. I understand the moment I'm in. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if you were willing, I could be made whole. 
And Jesus is moved by that, and he says, I am willing. And he touches him, and he's instantly made whole. I think there's some people in this meeting today who could pray exactly that same prayer. I, I know that you are able. I'm just not sure that you're willing. And that's my problem with theology. Theology has made people doubt the willingness of God while deifying the power of God. God is powerful, but he won't use it on your behalf, you ugly thing. That thing offends me, and it offended Jesus too. And his compassion was not just because the man was sick physically. His compassion was because that man's heart did not know that God loved him that much. And there's some people sitting in this meeting, you don't know, you, you'd pray the same prayer, Lord, if, if you were willing, I know you've got the power to do it. I'm just not sure you're willing. And I want you to hear with all your heart and want, let it resonate in your soul, I am willing. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground outside of your father's care. Even the hairs of your head are numbered, Jesus said. You are worth more than many sparrows. So if you come to the scriptures, you begin to see when the scriptures attach the greatness of God, it attaches it to one of the attributes of love. So let me read you a few. Numbers 14 says, in accordance with your great love. Deuteronomy, your great strength. Uh, Deuteronomy, your great power. Nehemiah, your great compassion, your great goodness, your great mercy, your great compassion, your great purposes, your great deeds. God's greatness is made manifest through his love. God's greatness is not an island unto itself. God's greatness leaks out through the character of God into the world that he created because he came to extend his kingdom and he wants you to see his kingdom. He wants you to know he's willing. He wants to make himself manifest. The greatness of God and the love of God come together and God wants to manifest greatness in your life. Not in some theological separate corner somewhere, but in the down and dirty details of where you are right now. This is what Job, one of his counselors said. If I were you, I would appeal to God. I'd lay my course before him because he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed. Miracles it cannot be counted. What a great view of God. I happen to know who God is. Talk about somebody who's seen the fire. Because I've seen God. He, let me tell you who he is. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed and miracles that cannot be counted. If everybody in this room got a miracle, we'd need about 60 or so. If everyone in this room took 10, we'd need about 600. He's got more than you can count. I can count to 600. If you asked as big and bold as you could for every aspect that's ever been in your life, it wouldn't even be a drop in the ocean of what God could handle. And somehow, somehow, 
a religious mist came into our hearts and said, oh, God is great, but he'll never do it on your behalf. Oh, God is great, but he's so far away. You would n- your shouts would never reach him. And I'm here to say that the whole tenet of the gospel, the whole message of the cross is that the God who was distant, holy, sovereign, amazing God stepped into time, took on the form of a man, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, all so that he could shout into the microphone, I'm not a distant God. My name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Some people sitting in this meeting and an unbelief has settled in your heart. I I know you can, but I'm not sure you will. And I think the Lord wants to destroy that. When I was asking the Holy Spirit, what do you want to do today? He said, I want to destroy unbelief. I want to go after it. So I'd just like to close in prayer and agree with him. And if you just open up your heart and say, Lord, take it out. I'm done with unbelief. Today I'm going to believe. Not only that you can, but that you will. That you are. That you have. Lord, here we come. Open up our heart once again to you. Remove from us, Lord, any form of unbelief. Any form of fear. Any form of lie that says, I know you can. I just don't think you will. And I ask, Lord, by your spirit that you would just resonate in the hearts of everybody in the meeting. I am willing. You're the God, Lord, who has bound himself irrevocably to us in covenant. Although you had no need, Lord, you have committed yourself irrevocably to us in covenant. You swore an oath in the blood of your own son, Father. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So, Father, we just lean back on that covenant. What an awesome God you are, Lord. What an astounding truth this is. So undeserved, Lord. So unmerited. We didn't work for this. We didn't deserve this. But that's just who you are. Your greatness on display through the love that you gave us. For you so loved us that you gave us your only son. So that we can stand here today. What an amazing God you are. Now, Lord, for every person who's in this meeting who says, Lord, I need a miracle. I need a miracle, Lord. I just thank you. I just break unbelief off them. I break it now in Jesus' name. Be gone off the people of God. And Lord, I pray by Holy Spirit, would you minister healing and peace? Would you heal the wounds of the past, Lord? Would you take away, Lord, the scars of our souls? Would you just remove that, Lord? And would you bring a new day of expectation, fresh hope. Why wouldn't we believe? Why wouldn't we see? I'm asking, Lord, today that some people in this meeting would meet with your great compassion, with your great kindness, with your great love. So, Lord, we dare to reach out with fresh arms, with full of hope, lay hold of you again and say, Father, We believe in Jesus' name. Amen.